is up everyone welcome back to the planet today with matt norton today is friday september 3rd 2021 i'm your host matt norton here once again with our producer and co-host nick janusa Nick, how's it going, buddy? Maddie, it is going super well. A little upset the summer's coming to a close, but, you know, all good things must come to an end. And, hey, I'm looking forward to fall, too. We got pumpkin spice season right around the corner. And sometimes good things fall apart so better things can come together. So with the close of summer, it's officially fantasy football season. Let's go. I think someone special has a little draft tonight. I have a draft in approximately five minutes, so uh, I'm going to do a little multitasking. It will not impact the pod. It might impact my team, but hey, that's fine. That's fine. (laughs) (laughs) That's par for the course. Dude, I had a very adult week this week. I uh, went to the dentist. I exercised a couple times, and I had three fantasy football drafts, so... uh, you know, excited for a little down week next week. Yeah, it's next week's going to feel like a breeze compared to this week. Yeah, so if you're new here, welcome to the planet today. Here on TPT, we cover the latest in climate change, wildlife conservation, renewable energy, and environmental policy, all in an easily digestible weekly podcast for you to listen to on your own time. This show is your one-stop shop for all things environmental, whether you're just diving into a green lifestyle or you're ready for some more involved conversations about what can be some complex topics. TPT has a little bit for everyone, so we are happy to have you as a listener. Before we get started, we wanted to read another listener review on Apple Podcasts as a thank you for supporting the show. Yes, so Freddie Dagg calls TPT well-composed and insightful and says an often poignant always brilliant weekly conversation between a couple of friends who are clearly exceptionally passionate about the topic of environmental conversation. I genuinely appreciate how they boil down the constant news cycle into a few quick hitting points and offer links to the articles that they're referencing. Keep fighting the good fight. What an awesome review from Freddie Dagg. Uh, those, those kind words definitely mean a lot to both of us. So thank you for your support. Absolutely. Nick, also, tell me Freddie Dagg is not a name straight out of Peaky Blinders. <laughs> it does sound like that. Wow. Oi, Freddie Dagg. <laughs> if you haven't already, please leave us a review on the show um, on Apple Podcasts. That way we can give you a shout out as a thank you, just like we did for Freddie Dagg. If you left us an early review, don't be afraid to do it again. The show has evolved, your review might evolve, and it helps all of us. All right, so let's go ahead and get into our quick hits for the week. So this first one is from the New York Times, where Katie Van Sickle writes, in climate coverage, reporting the grim facts, but also the fight. Yeah, so we can kick things off with something sort of motivational related to climate change rather than the usual doom and gloom. Um, So Katie wrote this piece that I wanted to bring up because it provides a really interesting spin on how we consume climate news. The article is written in question and answer format between Katie Van Sickle and Brad Plummer, who's a climate reporter for the Times Insider team. And Brad Plummer's focus is on policy and technology efforts to cut carbon dioxide emissions. And the questions that Katie asked led to some really interesting discussions between her and Brad. So she asks him how the Times team prepared for the IPCC report, which we've mentioned numerous times on the show and will continue to mention. Um, And Plummer explained how they received early drafts of the report. So he and Henry Fountain called up several scientists to figure out how climate research and modeling has improved since the last report in 2013. In other words, they did their homework. They wrote up some drafts ahead of time based on the drafts they were reading, and then they finalized it upon the release of the full report. 
They talked about how the overall reporting on climate change hadn't changed much between 1990 and today. The IPCC scientists have been saying that emissions from fossil fuels and deforestation cause the Earth to warm, but this report is a lot more definitive. The main difference now is that the impacts scientists have been warning about can be seen now. It's no longer some abstract future problem for future generations. The models that we talked about are also more accurate now, so we can tell more clearly what will happen over the next three decades. The thing I wanted to really highlight from this article is something we talk about often on our show. Climate coverage can be unsettling. Ben Sickle wanted to know if that's something that's considered when reporting. Plummer explained how they and we can't shy away from the dangers that climate change poses around the world. We need to clearly see the enemy, and in this case, the enemy is the carbon economy, in order to counter it. They also try to focus on the innovative ideas to adapt to extreme weather, how climate change intersects with existing social inequity, investors and businesses coming up with new emissions reduction strategies, and how climate change is now at the forefront of politics. So basically, there's a lot of this good fight to cover, and those stories are important too. So that's something that we on the TPT team will also try to focus on moving forward. We need to cover the gloom because it's important, but it's also our job to cover the reasons for hope. He closes the Q&A by mentioning how he walks, bikes, or takes the bus to work as a way to cut his personal emissions. But it's easy to do that in walkable cities, and not all cities are like that. I'm personally lucky that I get to do that in New York, but transforming the built environment so that everyone can have awesome public transit or have different methods to get around other than driving will be an important part of cutting carbon emissions moving forward. I've been a huge proponent this entire show, the entire time that we've been doing this show, of the hyperspeed rail. I will continue to be a spokesperson for that. Um, and also, should we get shirts that say like the planet today and then in quotes, like fighting the good fight? I feel like those would be six shirts. We can definitely look into some merch. I mean, hey, we, we put in the first quarter of work. We've been doing this for three months. <laughs> it might be time for a merch drop. I think it is. I think we're well overdue for a merch drop, I would say. <laughs> and hit us up in the comments if you would buy some merch from us. We'll see about it. We'll, we'll, we'll dive into it. We'll workshop. And you also know that if we do, a good portion of the proceeds are going to go towards environmental causes. Yeah. No, we're not going to take like, we're not going to take a lot of the money at all. We'll take maybe a little. Like, we'll take a little bit, maybe like a handful. <laughs> all right. So this next one is from um, Architectural Digest, actually. And it was written by Tim Nelson. And it's titled, Ikea is now selling a hot new product, renewable energy. So Ikea, the furniture company, set a goal of becoming a climate positive company by 2030, and they want to make more sustainable products for homeowners. They've been encouraging their customers to replace their furniture less often, and in doing that, they increase the life cycle of what is bought from Ikea. But this next step is set to make some noise in the renewable game. Inca Group, which is the largest owner of IKEA stores across the world, plans to sell affordable renewable electricity in IKEA stores found in Sweden. It will be called Struma, which is Swedish for flow, and is a cool way to cut into the company's overall carbon footprint. 
Uh, I thought this stat was really interesting, but home energy usage for IKEA products and appliances currently makes up 20% of the company's overall carbon footprint. So Strumo will help make renewables more accessible and cheaper for their customers. IKEA will sell solar panels through Svea Solar and then purchase power on the Nordpool Power Exchange, which gets passed on to customers for no additional cost to them. To break that down in a way that might make a little more sense, IKEA is going to buy solar panels and purchase power in the, in the electric grid. IKEA then sells the panels to their customers, and the customers get to enjoy some more awesome renewable energy at home. The customers can buy wind and solar power through an app, which also lets them check their own electricity usage. So overall, I think this sounds like an awesome and convenient way to get access to more renewable energy at a low price. Bojan Stupar, who is a sales manager for IKEA Sweden, said that IKEA is a home furnishing company and they want to make it easier for more people to live a more sustainable life at home. The Inca Group hopes to make this available to all customers by 2025. So this is an awesome thing to keep an eye out for as it develops internationally. Nick, what are your thoughts on this move? And also, are you an Ikea guy? You know what's funny? I've never had, I've never even been inside an Ikea before in my entire life. Uh, but I love this move. This is an awesome move. Uh, I feel like all good things kind of start in Sweden. I'm thinking about Spotify. I'm thinking about ABBA. I'm thinking about meatballs besides besides the fact that Italian <laughs> meatballs are better. We'll have that for another day. But everything good starts in Sweden. Yeah, this is a cool move. And, um, you know, I, th- I think that's just showing our upbringing there. I had never been to Ikea before this year because there's just none near us where we grew up. And I forget what I bought this year at Ikea. Oh, we got uh, we got our futon and it's a good one. So shout out Ikea. I slept on that futon. How about that? Yeah, <laughs> it's a great futon. All right, so this next one is from earthjustice.org, and it is titled, We're Fighting to Save Salmon from Deadly Heat Waves. So we have two reasons to bring this up. First, we talked about salmon in a few episodes so far, and second, some listeners have asked us about what we can do about certain topics that we bring up. So instead of just telling a news story, here is a call to action. So you can click the link in your show notes and sign this petition from Earth Justice. They write how climate change and intense heat waves are making harsh conditions in the Pacific Northwest worse for salmon, which struggle with water above 68 degrees Fahrenheit. Unfortunately, the water is hitting this level more often now in the rivers that they live in, and this is causing the salmon to head to tributaries, which are usually cooler. During the previous administration, federal agencies that manage dams on the Snake River and Columbia River rejected the salmon restoration methods that are crucial for both salmon and orca populations. Now, longtime listeners of the planet today might recognize orcas as Nick Janus's favorite aquatic mammal. Let's go. So Earth Justice is working to improve conditions in the lower Snake River, which should help salmon both survive and breed easier. This river is considered a migratory superhighway for salmon, and the salmon have been mostly threatened by man-made dams that create barriers for them to and from the ocean. Dams also cause water to pool in reservoirs and just kind of sit still in the sun as opposed to flowing freely. When the sun is constantly shining on sitting water, it gets hotter. So along with protecting the salmon, this is also an environmental justice issue because salmon are an important part of the diets and culture of many Native American tribes in the Northwest, including the Nez Perce tribe, 
which has a reservation above a dam in the lower Snake River. The salmon population also impacts the animal food chain, as Chinook salmon are one of the main food sources for orcas. Less Chinook salmon means more hungry and more starving orcas. The petition calls for increased water releases, or spills as they're called, from the dams to help get baby salmon past the dams. It also calls for limiting those spills to make sure that fish don't get hurt, and also lowering the reservoir levels above each dam so water can move through them faster. The lower reservoir level also means a lower surface area of the water, so the water has less time to heat up. So it's kind of interesting to see how precise the science is here, where we need to carefully calculate the spills in order to help long-term survival of the salmon. Earth Justice is calling for river restoration, structural changes to the federal dams, and bypassing the four dams on the lower Snake River to restore a 140-mile segment of the river to a free-flowing river. Again, you can click the link in your show notes to read this article, or you could just scroll to the bottom, click tell your Congress members that you don't want these fish to go extinct and that they should help restore the Snake River, and that link will let you fill in your name and your contact info, and then it provides an automated message to send to your Congress members. Senators Kirsten Gillibrand, Chuck Schumer, and Representative Jerry Nadler have already gotten a message from me on this, and it takes like 15 seconds, so... Here's your call to action from TPT. There you go, guys. 15 seconds of your time takes none of your time at all. Just go do this. It's a no-brainer. Save the salmon. Save the bears. Salmon's connected to the bears. Save the orcas. Save the orcas. Salmon's connected to the bears, connected to the orcas. All right, so let's get into the next one. So this next one is actually a scary story out of Lake Tahoe in California. And it was actually reported by NBC. And they stated, thousands forced to flee Lake Tahoe as California's Caldor fire rages. It was written by Antonio Planas and the Associated Press. This fire has been raging since August 14th and on Monday, so 16 days later, thousands were forced to evacuate. The wildfire began to push closer to South Lake Tahoe, so the entire city of 22,000 people and 30,000 people from El Dorado County were forced to evacuate. The authors of the article were unsure if this number included South Lake Tahoe at the time, so we're either looking at 30 or 52,000 people evacuating in total, and either way, that's tough. The Caldor fire has proved so difficult to fight that fire managers pushed back the projected date for full containment from early this week to September 8th. According to the authors of the article, that estimate seemed to be on the hopeful side. On Sunday, the fire moved through mountains southwest of the Tahoe Basin, and a thick smoke covered the area. This will cause a hit to the tourism industry, which usually booms in this area during Labor Day weekend. At the time of evacuation, 245 square miles had burned, and over 600 structures had been destroyed, while 18,000 structures remained threatened by the fire. The terrain of the area has proven to make the fire even harder to control, with some firefighting crews carrying hoses by hand on the highway to get close enough to work on containment. So let's all hope containment becomes more manageable in the coming days and that the damage is limited for all of those people who unfortunately were forced to leave their homes. Yeah, I totally agree with you on that front. The pictures from this were devastating, like so hard to look at. Um, And especially like in Tahoe, gosh, like that water is so clear. I don't know. I, I hope it's 
it's still going to be the same. I'm sure all the people that live in that area are, are hoping the same thing. Have you been there? No, haven't been. My my brother ran an Ironman race there, and God, Tahoe is like one of his favorite places. When he lived in San Francisco, he used to go bike ride up there all the time. So, I mean, special connection to my family, and you know, it, it doesn't take a personal connection for us to care about things like this. So, you know, thoughts are going out to all the people impacted personally there. Yeah, absolutely. All right, this next one comes from Alex Hillebrand and Alejandra Meja. Cunningham of the Natural Resource Defense Council, and it's titled, Thinking of Buying an Air Conditioner? Consider a heat pump. So if you are like me, you had not heard of a heat pump before today, and I thought this was really interesting. A heat pump air conditioner keeps things cool when it's hot outside by removing heat from your house and pumping it outside. Heat pumps can also do the opposite and provide heat when it's cold out. The refrigerant gases in the system are expanded and compressed depending on the outside temperature, and that's how it sort of just pumps the air to and fro. One downside is that these gases have their own environmental impact, so that's something that research and development teams are looking to replace with more environmentally friendly ones. The authors say to keep an eye out for air pump models with, quote, lower global warming potential refrigerants, which should be available soon. This is important to consider for people looking to replace their window units or their central air, or for areas that we talked about during the heat wave in the Pacific Northwest in July. As a reminder, my friend Rachel, who lives there, said that most of the homes there don't have air conditioning because you don't need it, and this will likely change as the region continues to warm. Heat pumps use less energy than traditional air conditioning systems, which are expensive and contribute heavily to climate change. We talked about this in past episodes as well, but it creates a cycle where it's hot outside, so you put your air conditioning on. And that further contributes to climate change, which means it's gonna be hot, which means you're gonna put your air conditioning on, and it you know, just keeps feeding off of itself. So with areas like the Pacific Northwest likely to see an uptick in AC usage, we will see more climate change contributions from air conditioning. Heat pumps, on the other hand, do not burn fossil fuels, so it will help fight climate change instead of contributing to Heat it. pump heating can also help consumers save money because heat pumps don't generate new heat by burning fuels. They just move the air around so they can be very energy efficient. The article states that per unit of energy, moving heat with electricity is several times more efficient, so much so that it's two to five times or better, depending on the conditions, uh, compared to making heat by burning fuel. So we're looking at lower heating bills because of the increased efficiency, and the heat pumps also work well in lower temperatures. One of the leaders in U.S. heat pump usage is the state of Maine, which anyone who's been to Maine in the winter can tell you it gets pretty brutal. If you found this interesting and you're thinking, cool, well, when should I do this? The authors recommend doing it when you're thinking about adding or replacing an air conditioner. A central heat pump can use the same air ducts, thermostats, and the same spot as a central air conditioner. So it'll be a few hundred dollars extra to put in the heat pump, but like we said, it'll save money on each utility bill for heat in the winter or air conditioning electricity in the summer. They also mention how if you were to wait until you need a heating system, you would need to replace your air conditioner with the heat pump, even though the AC is working perfectly fine. So in summary, it's better to do this when you need a new air conditioner. It will help you save money over time and be more environmentally friendly with your air conditioning and heating methods. Yeah. I mean, listen, I'm looking at some of the prices for these things 
It's not half bad. Yeah, it's just a little bit more expensive than your window unit, but like it seems a lot more efficient, a lot cheaper, and better for the environment. So, I mean, look, a couple hundred dollars extra to check off all those boxes seems worth it. All right, so our last quick hit of the week comes from the ABC News team, and the title of the article is Ida Live Updates. New Orleans evacuees told not to return until further notice. Yeah, so last week we mentioned some tropical disturbances in the Caribbean, and unfortunately one of them became a Category 4 hurricane and made landfall in Louisiana on Sunday, exactly 16 years to the day of Hurricane Katrina making landfall in Louisiana. Ida had winds of roughly 150 miles per hour as it approached land, which is just 7 miles per hour short of a Category 5 storm. This makes Ida the worst hurricane to hit Louisiana in 164 years. As it made landfall, hurricane-force winds extended 50 miles away from the eye of the storm, according to the New York Times. Jeff Masters and Bon Henson of Yale's Center for Environmental Communication reported that only four hurricanes, all Category 5s, have made landfall in the contiguous United States with stronger winds than Ida. And Ida is tied with Laura of 2020 and the 1856 Last Island Hurricane as the strongest to ever hit Louisiana. As a reminder, Hurricane Katrina was a Category 5 hurricane that hit Louisiana and Mississippi in 2005, but had downgraded to a Category 3 hurricane by the time it made landfall. Katrina resulted in $125 billion worth of damage, including causing the levees to break in New Orleans, where 80% of the city was submerged due to storm surge. The levees were replaced with newer, stronger, and more sophisticated levees, but leading up to the storm, the question remained, would they hold back another storm like Katrina? Yeah, this was just like horrible and poetic in a way, like 16 years to the day of Hurricane Katrina... And then also we're talking about after the spill this week, like those three things is just so weird altogether happening. It's wild. Yeah, it's it's one of those coincidental moments that, you know, you're not excited to read about like this. This sucks that this is happening. And what's unfortunate, too, is like you literally told me about after the spill probably two weeks ago at this point, like we had no idea this hurricane was coming through. Yeah. And it's weird too because we kind of pivoted I I realized that the documentary that I wanted to watch for this episode wasn't available on a lot of streaming platforms anymore so you know it was either ask everyone to rent it for four dollars which I didn't want to do or pivot and go to a different documentary so we just picked this one randomly off the list that we have of all the environmental documentaries that we want to work on so You know, the timing was just surreal. By Sunday night, MSN reported that Hurricane Ida had weakened to a Category 3 hurricane with winds of around 125 miles per hour, but all 789,000 people who live in New Orleans were without power. Hurricane Ida caused air pressure to fall to 930 hectopascal pressure units, which are a measure of barometric pressure. Only Hurricane Katrina had a lower pressure when pressure fell to 920 HPA, which is the abbreviation. The average air pressure is between 980 to 1013 HPA. And I know this can be hard to follow. Believe me, I had to do a lot of research just to understand this enough to talk about it on the show. 
Um, so the average air pressure in Denver as a comparison is 840 HPA. So this is basically as if the air pressure in New Orleans, which is below sea level, is comparable to a city at a much higher altitude, just not quite as high as the altitude of Denver. Um, I found Dodge City in Kansas has an average HPA of 920, and Dodge City is in western Kansas, about 400 miles from Denver. So that's the sort of air pressure we're talking about for a city that's below sea level. Because Ida traveled through a corridor between New Orleans and Baton Rouge, which is a critical oil port, the projected billions of dollars in damage includes a high risk of multiple releases of toxic chemicals and oil into the environment. As of Monday morning, Ida had downgraded to a tropical storm, but a tornado watch remained in effect for Mississippi, Alabama, and Florida as the storm began to move towards the Tennessee River Valley. Entergy, which is the power company responsible for energy transmission in the region, estimated that power could be out for weeks in some of the hardest hit areas. Thankfully, the levees around New Orleans held up through the storm, which prevented further damage in what is already going to be a catastrophic storm. The New York Times reported that there was widespread flooding around the state, but the systems built to defend New Orleans held up, even though the electrical grid did not. The city spent $14.5 billion on flood protection, which includes almost 200 miles of barriers, and flood water did not spill over at all throughout the system, which also didn't suffer any structural damage. So as good of news can be during a hurricane like this, that seems to be great news. Uh, the caveat is that, you know, a million people are without power and there's going to be a ton of damage and, and loss of life, unfortunately. As of Wednesday, over one million people were out of electricity and water, sewer and communication lines were also down or strained. And a quote from Daniel Kanuski in the New York Times Climate Forward newsletter says, if we're only preparing for the last disaster... We will never be prepared for the next one. So here he's kind of referring to this habit that we have of rebuilding destroyed infrastructure instead of building a better electrical grid, for example, which is what I hope will happen in Louisiana after this storm. The point he's kind of highlighting is hurricanes aren't going anywhere. So our options are things are going to get destroyed. Let's build them up and then things are going to get destroyed again or change the system. As the now tropical storm heads north, we can expect some heavy rainfall in the mid-Atlantic and northeastern United States in the next couple of days. After we finished recording, the National Weather Service declared a flash flood emergency in New York City for the first time ever, as 3.15 inches of rain fell in one hour Wednesday night, breaking last week's record of 1.94 inches during Tropical Storm Henri. All of New York's subway lines were delayed or suspended, New Jersey suspended its rail service, and flights were postponed at Newark Airport in New Jersey. As of Thursday afternoon, at least 14 people in the New York City area have died as a result of the flooding from Hurricane Ida. Yeah, uh, it's. I feel so bad for the people of New Orleans. Like, how many huge storms can you live through, you know? Like, it just seems like every single time there's a big storm in that area, or sorry, every time there's a big storm, it's... It's going for that area for some reason. Um, glad the levees held up and yeah. Yeah, you know, it's, it's interesting you bring up how many hurricanes can they take because National Geographic on August 27th of this week, um, Sarah Gibbons wrote an article called How Many Natural Disasters Can One City Endure? Um, and it's about 
As another hurricane bears down on Louisiana, the town of Lake Charles, hit twice last year, faces the painful question of climate change. How can we adapt and who is going to pay? I haven't had a chance to read it yet. Um, it's on my list, but, you know, I mean, there's there's some further topic for discussion about what you just said. Yeah, absolutely. Um, okay, so I think right now is a good time to take a break. And after the break, we will be talking about the documentary After the Spill. Nick, I don't know about you, but along with crippling seasonal allergies, I also have a dust allergy. And I don't know about you, but I am pretty bad at cleaning, um, mostly because I just kind of have this innate ability to overlook dust. So (laughs) just when you thought I was getting out of allergy season, my apartment says, hey, buddy, try dusting us once so your girlfriend doesn't have to do this every time. Um, so I've been sneezing again. You know, Matt, we all go through the dust bunnies. We all have our, our little case of the dust bunnies. It's okay. I wish there was just a product that I could use when I had the dust bunnies, you know? Yeah, I, I don't know the product for when I need to dust to, to mitigate the problem, but I know how to adapt with my Vala Alta Everyday Handkerchief, which is a high-performance daily-use handkerchief designed to help minimize your impact. It's made in the United States from sustainably sourced Irish linen, capturing the material's historic craftsmanship and natural antimicrobial properties. Handkerchiefs perfectly balance softness with durability and absorbency with rapid drying. Ideal for functional use in all settings, from the outdoors to routine encounters, their small and lightweight design makes one a must-carry for wherever life takes you. Build your own bundles from limited edition colors at valaalta.com and save 15% with code TPT at checkout. That's V-A-L-A-A-L-T-A dot com and code TPT. Fall's coming up. Colder weather's coming. Be prepared. Valaalta.com. Welcome back to the planet today, folks. As we mentioned last week, we watched the 2015 documentary After the Spill for this month's documentary review. It was directed by John Bowermaster, written by John Bowermaster and Christopher Cavanaugh, and narrated by Melissa Leo. John Bowermaster's summary of the documentary is as follows. Ten years ago, Hurricane Katrina devastated the coast of Louisiana. Five years later, the Deepwater Horizon exploded and spilled more than 200 million gallons of oil into the Gulf of Mexico, the worst ecological disaster in North American history. Amazingly, those aren't the worst things facing Louisiana's coastline today. It is that the state is fast disappearing. When on Earth Day 2010, BP's Deepwater Horizon exploded and sank, Many in Louisiana predicted it would change the state's coastline forever, both its economy and its people. How has the coast changed in the past five years? So this documentary is only about an hour long. If you like listening to our discussion before watching them, you are not in for a long commitment this time. It's definitely interesting timing, like Nick said earlier, that we decided to watch this documentary in the same episode that we're talking about another hurricane hitting Louisiana. 
this is the opposite of serendipity where the timing worked out, but we wish we were watching this documentary without tremendous damage occurring this week in the same place that we're talking about right now. So anyway, let's get into our recap and discussion. We get right into it with a massive explosion on an oil rig that occurred on Earth Day 2010 that resulted in hundreds of millions of gallons of oil in the Gulf of Mexico. This is called the worst ecological disaster in U.S. history and led to the question, would this change the coast of Louisiana forever? British Petroleum, or BP, has spent millions on a media campaign to combat the damages they caused, but their PR recovery has ignored the fact that Louisiana's coast is disappearing. Yeah, it was so infuriating to watch them like literally claim like, oh, the tourism dollars are higher than they've ever been in the entire history of New Orleans. And like they're literally just spewing oil into the into the Gulf. It was infuriating to watch. Yeah, we were just getting gaslit by a gas company and it yeah, like every single time they talked, I'm just like, do, do you hear yourself? <laughs> yeah, it was, it's like a, it's like a um, big pharma commercial where they're like telling you about like all the horrendous side effects. But in the background, there's just like a father and a son having a little catch or like they're fishing or they're on a boat, some like that. Dude, another thing that's very similar, uh, ExxonMobil tweeted this week about how their thoughts and prayers go out to the people of Louisiana. And, and you know, I, I saw that, People were comparing it to that skit from I Think You Should Leave, I think is the name of it, where it's the guy in the hot dog costume, and he's like, we're all looking for the person who did this, <laughs> and it's him the whole time. So, like, the people who work social media for oil companies, like, whatever they're paying you, I don't think it's worth this morality that you're giving up, but, you know, to each their own. And, and we're going to get into the whole money versus morals thing a lot during this uh, this documentary review. So let's just get into it. Um, next up, we hear from Keith Jones, whose son Gordon worked for the Deepwater Horizon oil rig and unfortunately died in the explosion. He talks about how no one from BP called him or his family to apologize or to even make time for them. This is just awful because BP ignored certain safety protocols and their negligence led to the loss of life immediately. Normally, the loss of life from the oil industry happens over time through damaging water quality, air quality, and just generally making the planet hotter. But here, it's like their industry caused this family to have to grieve suddenly, and they couldn't even take the time to just give them a call and say, we're so sorry for your loss. And they refer to the oil industry as the deal with the devil and that kind of just perfectly sums up this theme we're going to be hinting at a lot of with the oil industry. It's kind of money versus morals and which side are you taking there? They have the testimony from some BP employees, including Kevin Lacey in the film. And Lacey was BP's vice president of drilling and completions in the Gulf of Mexico from 2008 to 2009. And at one point he's asked, did anyone in BP's management ask you to choose cost over safety in 2009? To which he thinks and says, not explicitly. Yeah, and when you say he thinks, you're even underestimating it because it's literally like a 10 to 15 second pause. He's like, okay, I can't say this. I can't say this. I'm going to screw this up. And he's like, no, not explicitly. Yeah, he just like runs through all the different scenarios of what can I say without incriminating the people I used to work for. 
<laughs> and look, I mean, I'm not going to pull any punches here. When it comes to oil execs, I do not think we're talking about good people. I think we're talking about people who know how to make money easily. Um, I don't know. They're just, they're not my group of friends. I'll put it that way. Kevin Lacey ended up being removed from his position because of disagreements with BP higher ups about safety. And once he was removed, BP peeled back the protective layers that keep explosions like this from happening. And then it happened. By the time of the spill, BP's drilling and completions execs had only been with the company for a few months. So that much turnover during a crucial stage in development is bound to lead to issues. And unfortunately, here those issues stemmed from ignoring safety protocols that it seemed like people like Kevin Lacey were advocating for before being removed from their positions. So like, what did they think was going to happen? Without the safety measures in place, they would just make money and nothing bad would come of it? This is what happens when you do that. Yeah, it's like my mother always used to say, Matt, if you don't wear sunscreen, you're going to get burned. Exactly. I mean, you, you have these protocols up for a reason, so ignoring them kind of just screws you over here. And in this case, it screwed them over in the form of hundreds of millions of gallons of oil being dumped in and the loss of life for more than a couple people. Keith Jones is brought back on and he says money drove every bad decision that caused this blowout. There, meaning BP, negligence is always driven by greed. Always, always, always driven by greed. In 2015, when the video was made, oil exploration was a bigger industry than it was before the Deepwater Horizon spill. Oil companies claim that this process is safer than ever, but many would ask, does that mean it's safe? Does that mean there are no environmental issues that arise from this industry? If we're talking semantics here and what it means to actually be safe, I would argue that it's not safe, even if there are less opportunities for explosions and oil spills. It's just like it's like smoking light cigarettes. You're not going to say that those are good for you. I mean, they might be better for you than Marlboro Reds, no free ads, but they're definitely not good for you. <laughs> yeah. The, the BP propaganda about the Gulf restoration and how resilient the Gulf was with bouncing back was so tough for me because you got to think that the people typing that don't actually believe it, right? Like they kept saying, BP has done so much good to help restore the Gulf. But I mean, 10 million gallons of oil sat on the ocean floor for five years after the Deepwater Horizon spill. And that was at the time of this documentary being made. And yet BP is claiming they're doing such a good job. And look, everyone has a price, I guess. And PJ Han, who was the scientist who dove below the water surface to investigate the area, had his wetsuit disintegrate from the oil. So I personally don't think whatever price their PR team is getting paid is worth it. But again, to each their own. Yeah. And the most frustrating part too was like, watching them just literally pay people who live in the area to like go through on their hands and feet and literally like suck up oil from some of the marshes. Like that was, it's like you made the mess. How about you go in there and clean it up? Like you're paying, you're paying people probably like less than 15 an hour to go in and like suck up oil. It's probably like the nastiest job. It's like a Mike Rowe thing. Yeah. It's like, Hey, we messed up your home, but we'll pay you to go fix it. 
if you don't want to do it, don't worry about it. Like it'll just sit there. So like they're, they're kind of forcing people to do it, to clean up for their mistakes. Yeah. PJ Han described the effects of the residual oil as the slow death of the marsh. There's a scene where they go to the marsh islands to show the birds losing their nesting areas, which they have imprinted on, meaning that they go to the same spot year after year. And now that spot is almost gone as a result of the oil spill. The same can be said about the trees that grow in the water, which were just stumps at the time of this documentary. Louisiana is slowly subsiding and there's ongoing sea level rise, but the oil spill accelerated the loss of mangrove forests and islands. And then we get more BP bragging about paying for all of the costs of restoration and scientific analysis of the coasts. Like, hey, we're making a lot of money, so we'll give you some as a, we're sorry, for ruining your coastline with our own negligence. Like, come on. Every time they went to a BP scene where it's like showing their commercials or their little advertisements over what was actually going on, I just, I felt my blood just boil. Yeah, it was like I said, infuriating. I wanted to like run through the TV and like punch <laughs> the CEO. I'm, I'm with you. Um, there was also a quote that stuck out to me a lot that I wanted to bring up. And it was the flag of Texaco flies over the Louisiana capital because it's easier to pay politicians than it is to pay for the true costs of the oil industry. I, I forget who said that. So I'm sorry for not crediting them, but it, I was just, when they said it's easier to pay politicians than it is to pay for the true costs, I was like, damn, yeah, it is. <laughs> and we, we see that later. We see that later in the documentary, and that's the part that's just like even more infuriating. Often the people who suffer from environmental disasters like this, poor people and people of color are impacted the worst. So they mention how this spill devastated the fishing industry in the Gulf, which is traditionally an African-American and Native American industry. They talk about how the BP oil disaster is ongoing as the impact remains. Like it's the, the oil is just sitting there in the water and still to this day contaminating the fish that these people are, are relying on for food, for industry. I don't see them getting any sort of check cut from BP over this. Next up, another fun one. Jane Lubchenco is shown on August 2010 stating that the vast majority of the oil has been skimmed out, burned off, or evaporated. This was only a few months after the spill. I would like to highlight that she was the administrator for NOAA, which is the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. Here's what I was talking about earlier when I said it was a rough realization that it's cheaper to pay politicians. Next up, Wilma Subra, a MacArthur Genius Award-winning chemist, mentions how the damage of the BP oil disaster continues to deteriorate the environment, human health, and the economy, despite people thinking that it's over and done with because of BP's commercial campaign. Dude, I audibly gasped when Tony Hayward said that the people getting sick after working to remove oil from the Gulf and the marshes may have gotten food poisoning. This is BP's chief executive from 2007 to 2010 being like, yeah, they're exposed to chemicals, but they're not toxic. So it was probably food poisoning. That dude is literally the most brain dead individual I have ever heard speak words. But dude, like that happens. That's the thing. Like that probably happens all the time, but seeing it on this documentary and like he's on camera saying, 
they're all getting sick. It's probably food poisoning. I was so angry. He's a bitch. <laughs> In the five years after the BP oil spill, there were nearly 10,000 leaks related to oil popping up on the coastline. And again, BP maintained that there was nothing wrong, which is then followed up with more BP propaganda that I'm just going to summarize by saying, hey, we are committed to cleaning up the oil spill we messed up. But let's not talk about that. Here at BP, we love America. And you love America too, don't you, viewers at home? Well, then focus on the jobs we create instead of the damage we have caused to America. Because what's more important than America is Americans. Insane deflection to basically say oil spills are patriotic if you create jobs after them. <laughs> Like that whole thing was just, Hey, we messed up here, but we create a lot of jobs and we love America. Like, so do I, I've never dumped 200 million uh, gallons of oil in the Gulf of Mexico. But anyway, I digress. Show your love for your country by just dumping (laughs) some oil this weekend, guys, just dump (laughs) some oil. If you really love it here, you will pollute. (laughs) Um, That was basically their, their thing. Um, And then I I don't think it's intentional, but I would not be able to sit here without calling him out for it. Carl Henrik Svanberg mentions how people think oil companies are greedy and that they don't care. And then he says, but we do care and totally leaves out the part about being greedy, which I would say is probably because they are. Then it's talked about how Louisiana loses about a football field every 50 minutes and has lost land the size of Delaware from its coastline. They say that New Orleans wouldn't need levees if the land was still there because it serves as a buffer between the coastline and the people living there. 76% of land loss here is because of the oil industry. 76%. That's just devastating to hear that they're responsible for this much of the problem. Like, you have to know it's bad, but quantifying it that way was just jaw-dropping to me. Yeah, that's that's one of the few stats I had written down because it was just so impossible to comprehend. Yeah. I thought the line about the lawsuits against the oil industry was worth bringing up as well. Um, They want protections from lawmakers, whereas lawmakers just want the oil industry to obey the law. So they're just looking for special protections here. Later on, it's revealed that a federal judge dismissed the lawsuit against the oil companies. Nanette Brown was a corporate defense lawyer for the oil industry before becoming a federal judge. She was a hands-on oil and chemical lawyer who represented polluters. And somehow this case against those people she used to defend ended up on her desk. It is easier to pay politicians than it is to just do the right thing. The lawsuit being dismissed meant that nearly 100 oil and gas companies will not pay for decades of damage to the Louisiana coast. Another strong quote was asked towards the end, what other industry do people accept catastrophic tragedies as just the cost of doing business. They take it as a trade-off that we have to bear. The cost of doing business is losing the coast, damaging the water, and polluting the air. So sure, we're making money, but at what cost? Not to mention the wildlife that we have lost from this. Yeah. I mean, like, that's a really good point. We've all seen those Dove soap commercials where it's like, hey, BP really messed up. You can use Dove dish soap to help clean ducks. <laughs> We've seen that in those commercials. So you got to know that it's not just happening to them. Yeah. 
The documentary closes by revealing that in June 2015, BP agreed to pay a fine of up to $19 billion for its 2010 oil spill in the Gulf. As of last year, BP was worth $183.5 billion. So to be fair, that's a pretty hefty fine. Um, is it enough? Who's to say? The payments will be spread out over 20 years between the five states, while Louisiana continues to lose over an acre of land per day. Nick, before we wrap things up, what was the most impactful scene for you? Uh, that's a great question, Maddie. Uh, I think it has to be when they're showing the graphic of the New Orleans um, coastline. It starts in like 1960 and then it goes like all the way up until 2009 or something like that. And you just watch the coast just fade, like just sea level rising and rising and mm. rising and it just being completely about like just gone. Um, and how easily that can continue to happen if like not more is done. If we don't like keep these oil companies under, you know, harsher regulations. Um, yeah, that was the most insane thing to me. Like that is land that people were living on that they can no longer live on. And it's going to continue to happen if we don't actually change something about it. Yeah. Yeah. Very, very good point. I think for me, it was the scene with the birds um, struggling to find their nesting land and trees missing from the marshes, all while oil is present in the marsh itself, um, because you could really just get a, a good view of what the environmental harm that's that's happening here is. Um, either that one or the scene where it's, it's when they're talking about diving underwater in the wetsuit disintegrating. Um, you just see all of the oil particles floating in the Gulf while the camera's underwater, and it just it's just tough, man. Like it's, it's hard to look at these sort of things sometimes. All right, Matt. So what was your key takeaway for the film as a whole? Um, I would say that we will never see true environmental justice until we stop using fossil fuels. Like there's no way around it. That's, that's it here. And with environmental justice, I also mean social inequity and, this fossil fuel economy just kind of screws over everyone and, and every living thing uh, and the environment as a whole. So yeah, my, my key takeaway is that fossil fuels are the enemy of the people. Yeah. Uh, in a similar vein, I think my key takeaway was uh, it's the same message I've been at nauseum, just throwing down the people's throats on this show, but like money over, you know, people and lives and safety is just always a bad idea. It, it will never be a good idea until the end of time. Um, and hopefully we, we can learn our lesson once and for all because every single yeah. documentary we watch has the same underlying message that like, just like, don't be a dumbass. Yeah. Like, <laughs> <laughs> like, please stop picking money over people. It's a very basic yeah. thing. Just follow it. That's all I can say. All right, last question before we get out of here. On a scale of wouldn't recommend to I loved it, what would you rate after the spill? I am a little bit in the middle here. Uh, I would say that you should watch it again, but it was slightly less captivating than the other ones we've watched. Yeah, no, I'm definitely with you here. I, I think it was important. Uh, not my favorite, to be honest, but like this sounds kind of mean, but it's short enough that it's worth the watch for me. No, absolutely. Um, 
I, I think if it was to be the same time as like before the flood or some of the other documentaries that we're going to get into in the next couple months that are more in that 90 minute time frame, this would be tough. But I think this being only an hour, you know, I, I, I think they did a good job juxtaposing BP's commercials versus what was actually going on. Um, but I, I like documentaries that kind of provide a call to action. And I think that was missing for me here. Yeah. So I'll, I'll rank it important, but not my favorite. I like that. All right. And that will do it for this week's episode of TPT. Next week, Nick and I will be back in the studio once again for another fun show. Until that episode drops, you can keep up with us on Twitter and Instagram at Planet Today Pod or email us at planettodaypod at gmail.com. We'd also really appreciate it if you could share the show with a friend. This weekend, go take over the speakers and play some TPT at your Labor Day weekend barbecue. We know you're going. I want you playing Nick's smooth musical stylings and then our silky voices over your speakers. Right on. Aside from that, if you have any questions you want us to answer, send them in. If you see a story you want us to cover, you can send that too. If you have a guest you'd like for us to have on, let us know and we will see what we can do. If you like the show, please give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. Even if you listen on Google or Spotify, the reviews on Apple help the show grow the most. If you don't feel like it's worth five stars, please still give us a five-star rating. It still really helps more than a four-star rating would. The Planet Today is written and hosted by me, Matt Norden. You can follow me on Twitter at Matt Norden. We are co-hosted and produced by the incredibly talented Nick Janusa, who also does the music for every show. Nick, where can our listeners hear more from you? You can hear more from me at soundcloud.com slash Cape, and that is B-U-D-L-Y-N-C-A-P-E. Have a great weekend, everyone, and we will catch you right here next Friday. Peace.